I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Daston, art historian, and myself, Justin Bua, artist. Today, we are talking about the great monominous artist, Giotto. That sounded like a little Muppet sketch. Monominous. Monominous. <laughs> well, monominous is single, known. From by a single word, like Prince is monominous. Myself, I'd like to say that I'm monominous. Bua, a lot of people call me Bua. It's just somebody that's known by their first name. Who else? Prince, Bua. Rembrandt. Ma- Madonna. Picasso, kind of, but not really, because people call him Pablo, too. But I would say Michelangelo is Yeah, Michelangelo and Rembrandt. Did you know monominous? Yeah. Okay, just checking. <laughs> Because you know everything, so I just was trying to absolutely not. Get but that it one by I did you. know. <laughs> but Giotto was definitely monominous. Um, I'm trying to think of anybody else besides Prince, Madonna, Michelangelo, <laughs> Einstein. No, people no, know everyone knows Albert. Really? Yeah. Okay, Albert. I got no Tesla. Nobody knows Tesla. What's Tesla's? Exactly. That's my well, point. Elon Musk. No. Tesla's the brand, right? Tesla's, yeah, Tesla's not a person. Man- yes, he was. What? Of course. Is that true? Oh, I, I know very ask. little about cars. Clearly. <laughs> well, there goes her brilliant status. That's out the window. <laughs> Throw the baby out. If a car out. is in a painting, I got it. If there a car is on the street, no interest. No interest. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. Anyway. <laughs> Actually, I think that all of the artists from the Renaissance, which is the era that we're, dis- we're discussing. Not really. We're discussing the proto-Renaissance. Well, right. But he was an early Renaissance figure. So proto we should discuss the differences in the terminologies because some historians call it late Gothic, proto-Renaissance, okay. Renaissance, whatever. There's a lot of slippages within there. But Raphael, Donatello, and Michelangelo, I, I think the key figures of the Renaissance are typified by their surnames. Okay, and also the um, the Ninja Turtles as well. Yeah, exactly. Check out that episode. So Giotto was... Let me just wax a little bit about what I know about him. He was a... They can't figure out where he was from. Back then, it was like a lot of just hand-me-down information. Like, people didn't know, and people were like, oh, we have documentation that he bought this furniture, therefore he must have been from Florence. Like, it was like that. (laughs) Like, a lot of what, what I've researched about like people's whereabouts. I think people say he was, historians say he was from Florence. Other people say he was from a little village, whatever. Point is, he was a really good, he was one of those really good prodigal artists. I mean, prodigal for those days, right? It's all relative. And he was doing, uh, he was drawing at a very early age and he was drawing Goats on rocks, and that's where his mentor found him. Do you know his mentor? Chimabui. Chimabui, which is interesting because I'm Bua and he's Bui. That's what I. Is that interesting? <laughs> yeah, I think it is because it sounded like my name when I heard it. Chimabui discovered him and brought him in as an apprentice. Uh, and that's how Giotto got his start during the Proto Renaissance. And it was a, during a really weird time because at that time, people painted 
like like very graphically. It was Byzantinian art was very graphic, heavy. It was hyper stylized. Uh, it'd been two hundred years where people were giving two shits about the form, you know, on a on a on a realistic level, and he brought realism to the game. The figures really looked like naturalistic figures, and drapery felt like drapery. Perspective wasn't figured out at all, but it was a big jump, right? I mean, that's that's Jutta was kind of like the pivot of art history because it went from no offense to Byzantinian art, but in a lot of ways, kind of shitty art to naturalistic art. Yeah, I think that you just outlined a lot of the significance of Jutta's practice, and I wouldn't say that art that Byzantian art is shitty. I would just say that it is intentionally stylized, that it's meant to illustrate religious themes, but none of the artists were observing from life. And something that Giotto did that was revolutionary at the time was that he was this active observer of nature and he would scrutinize things in front of him. And he revitalized the Greco-Roman technique of actually drawing from life. And so for from the time of ancient Greece up until the early 1300s, people were just kind of drawing or creating out of their own imagination. And art that came before the Renaissance, the art from the Middle Ages, the Byzantian art is just very, very stylized. Figures are stacked up on top of each other. There's a flatness. Their faces are painted with angularity. And it's more about the message that they communicate and the symbolism that they embody rather than the body that actually occupies that space. And so that really changes in significant ways with Giotto. And Renaissance art, I think it's worthwhile to just kind of give a context for that. It literally means rebirth because there was a lull in art innovation in during the Middle Ages. And even during the Gothic era, I think architecture flourishes then but painting and mosaics, there's just sort of a stasis. So at the time of the Renaissance, we have a rejuvenation of fine art practice. So painting and sculpture and tesserae and all of that. And so Giotto was at the head of, of that pack. And for one of the reasons is because he scrutinized nature. And so as you say, the figures that he made, they are so much more lifelike. And even though linear perspective wasn't yet a developed thing, you wouldn't really know that looking at some of Giotto's later work. And I'm thinking the arena chapel, which we should talk about later. So this moment is really so significant because it is a flourishing of all the arts. And when we say someone is a Renaissance man, what do we mean? That he or she is good at lots of different things. And da Vinci was also a scientist and interested in biology and was an inventor. And everybody kind of did everything. And the other thing that is super, super important to talk about, and then we can discuss the works, is the birth of humanism. So can you name a single artist from the Gothic era? Any painter? Any, any artist from Greek or Roman times onward? Can you? It's a, a legit question. No. Yeah, I can't either. And it's right. because none of them were named. The importance right. was not who created, but what was produced. Right. And there was this guy, a historian, also a painter, named Vasari. And during the early Renaissance, he published a book called The Lives. Mm, and this was okay. really the first time 
anybody cared about the maker. And so you mentioned, well, Giotto was the student of Chimabui's and they met in these circumstances and he bought this thing. We only know that because right. of humanism. Literally every moment before this, nobody cared about the artist because that didn't matter. The fame wasn't important. It was just about the end result and how that impacted your lives. So this is a huge shift in multiple areas, a shift technically and a shift psychologically where this is the birth of our interest in artists. And a quick little anecdotal story about Chimabui and his student Giotto. When he left him alone in the studio, I'm sure you know the story, or do you not? I don't. Oh, he left him alone in the studio, and Giotto painted a fly on one of his paintings. And Chimabui comes back from the studio and sees the fly and kind of brushes it off and moves to the other side of the room. And he looks, looks back and goes, God damn it. And he comes back and he hits the fly again. <laughs> and he realizes, oh, what? Like that, that, that's not a fly. And so here's Chimabui, one of the greatest painters of the era. And his student is already tricking him because he's a greater painter. The student is now the teacher and he is drawing flies not mocking Chimabui, <laughs> but kind of adding to the dimension of lore about his own character, which is he was such a good artist that he could, he could trick the eye, trompe l'oeil, the eye, into thinking that, wow, that's a real fly. Now, today's standards, a million artists can do that, you know, because that's what artists do. They, they, they render in school and they learn how to do that. But back then, that was a really difficult thing to do. And the other anecdotal story is that, well, you know the story about the Pope? Right. Okay, so the Pope sends a messenger to find all the great artists to do. Which chapel was he doing? Well, I don't his, know which one he was doing. The iconic Giotto Chapel is the Scrivegni, which is But is the Scrivegni the, the one that the Pope goes and sends the messenger for? I think so. Sends the messenger to all the great artists all around Italy, and everybody says, you know, give us an example of one of your great work, of one work, and so people do drawing or hand them this or that. So to go to Giotto's studio, and Giotto sits there, and he goes, okay, takes out a canvas, dips his brush in red paint, and does a perfect circle, almost like a compass did it, or two compasses, right? And not a compass, what are those things called? Protractor? Yeah, something like that. So does a perfect circle. Perfect. And he goes, hand him that. And the messenger's like, dude, I can't hand him that. Like, really? Like that? Are you, really? And he goes, just trust <laughs> me. Hand them that. So he hands, the, hands him the perfect circle. And the Pope's going through all the work. And he goes, well, you know, what's this? And he goes, that's what he did. And he said, but he told me to tell you that he did it right in front of me. And at that point, the Pope goes, yeah, that discard the other work. This is who I want. I want Giotto. Because... Nobody at that time could draw a perfect circle out of their, with, you know, with, with no tools whatsoever. And he knew the level of skill and mastery of draftsmanship that this artist must have. I mean, there might be another story like Chimabui was like, hey, you also need to hire this kid. He's incredible. He drew a fly in my painting. It was unbelievable. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's a compass. The compass is the actual tool. But the point is that like, there's lore around this guy. Like the, this guy was a he was a he was a big deal. He was also known uh, to be one of the ugliest <laughs> artists ever. Did Vasari no. write that? Vasari did, yeah. And he said, you know, 
he said he had said some there's some story where Vasari said and I can't even believe you had kids and he, and then Giotto said something to the effect of yeah well it was it was all done during darkness when no one, when, when no one could see me <laughs> but you know he was <laughs> he was known to be very hard to look at but Michelangelo was too Michelangelo I don't think Giotto was a was famous right which is weird like you said it was the, it was humanism it was the and thank God for Vasari because he's shown light on a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of interesting facts because we need to care. Right now, that's what you and I do. You and I care about artists. And so was that was the also the pivot point of giving two shits about the inner workings of these people. And Giotto was famous. It's interesting to know that he had all these little stories about the fly and the circle and that he was not a handsome man, but he was funny about it. As well, Michelangelo was just angry about it. He was curmudgeon So that's, I, I love these stories. You know, I love, when I hear about Leonardo da Vinci, I love the fact that he was six feet tall in the time when the average height was 5'4", that he was incredibly handsome, that he was, you know, gay, that he loved animals and he was vegan. You know, all these stories add to the, to the, to the lore of these characters. Yeah, exactly. They create a mythology, and I don't think that they are trivial anecdotes because the point is that we have the anecdotes and that we never had them before. And so this is a rebirth of the art, but it is a birth of the artist. And I just think that that is incredibly profound. And my own two cents about Renaissance is that I really truly believe that we're all Renaissance artists. We all are. Whether, you know, like the only characters that are, uh, the only people that are uh, specialized are insects. That's really, that's what over-specialized creatures are. They're insects. They have one task. But human beings are naturally renaissance. I mean, every single person does multiple things. And every single person can be really great at multiple things if they, you know, put the time into it. I think the only, I really believe that the only Creatures that are specialized are, are insects, not human beings. We're all supposed to be renaissance. So it's interesting now. We live in a time where you have to be like an insect. No, I need to get a degree in this and then a PhD in that and then this because they're only looking for that. And that's kind of how we're being bred. We're being bred like insects. And I, I love going back to the, to the idea of the renaissance when it was the way that it should be, where we were all dimensional thinkers. I mean, during the Renaissance, it was like, you know, you were learning light logic with mathematics and architecture with color theory. It's like it was all under the same umbrella. Yeah, I really think that's a terrific point because we are so myopic today where we feel the pressure to excel at one thing, to be the best art historian, to be the best artist. But you also, as you mentioned, we're all incredibly dimensional. And so why don't we just try to explore lots of different facets yes. of ourselves. We were just talking about how, yes, both of us are intellectual, but one of my favorite things to do is to watch The Bachelor, and <laughs> I know every single housewife who has ever existed, right. and that doesn't erode, that enhances. We, we have a complex constellation of identities, and we have lost that, I think, today, I and so a revitalization right. of the way that Renaissance artists saw themselves from a multiplicity of perspectives, I think is really helpful and also healing. Yeah, I, I agree. So 
back to Jutto. Uh, he is kind of now known during his time to be that guy, right? He was that artist. He was that famous. He was that celebrated. He was that sought after. So it's an interesting time. You got a guy who's who's really making changes and is now kind of creating the look and feel of one of the most important places in the world, which oh, is yeah. Italy, you know? Right, and the launching off point in art history. The yeah. Renaissance is really what starts it all. And he didn't make these changes overnight. So in his early work, I'm thinking Madonna Enthroned is from 1310. We see a confluence of the old style that he takes from his teacher and also the new directions that he is forging. And the old, the residue of Byzantine art, I see with the gilding of the background, which just means that instead of painting the background, he applied gold leaf. Mm. And that is a traditional religious technique. I think when you see gold, you think of something regal, ethereal, spiritual, and elevated. And so any scene that was religious in nature with a gilded background, all all of a sudden just was catapulted to a different level of significance. And that was a technique that was more traditional. And then eventually, Giotto would innovate because he painted the backgrounds of his work. He was famous for painting with this beautiful, rich blue lapis, which was an incredibly expensive pigment because it came from a semi-precious stone that he crushed up and he added a bind to it. And so that... Lapis lazuli. Yeah, I never know how to say the last yeah. word, like yeah. lazuli, so I just I say lapis. I think yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever, that thing. And not only did it sort of shift from the expectation to the modern, the modern at the time, but it's making more of a naturalistic scene because mm. skies are blue, they're not gold. Right. So I think in this early work, we still see some tethers to traditionalism, but the Madonna, she has a weight a solemnity, a mass that we never see in even Shimabui's work. His work, the figures are frail, they're delicate, they're live. Mm. And this one holds her space. And she's in this very small, delicate tabernacle. She's sitting inside of it, but her body owns it. And I see a groundedness that didn't exist before. And mm. then another traditional aspect is that this even happened in art from ancient Egypt, that the more significant the figure, the bigger he or she was within the composition. Mm -hmm. And so in this work, there are angels, but they're very small. And it's not because they're in the background. They're small to signify their lack of importance within the scene. And then the Madonna, the mass of her body, it's exacerbated because of the smallness of the other figures. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, too, because weight is really defined by good drawing you know so like there's probably the technical application of understanding life and how life works you know with the contrapposto and just weight distribution and, and mass that really comes from just drawing from life and not drawing out of your head all the time so that's probably a technical thing but he was also making women like feel like women as opposed to these gaunt bizarre like aliens because before that <laughs> no it's true like they look like aliens and 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 kids look like young men, you know what I mean? Like they were like fat little men at, from like the Wizard of Oz, you know, <laughs> the, it was, but not not saying that Giotto was was exempt from making kids look like you, men, older 40 year olds who are dressed up like kids, but there, there was still that 
he was he was heading towards the direction of making kids feel like kids and women feel like women as opposed to women feeling like Martians and kids feeling like you know these little men so it was he was he was in the right direction you know and i think that was the start of uh the beginning of the naturalism and the beginning of of paving the way for you know the Donatellos and the Michelangelos and 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 you know everybody really it was he's he was starting it uh, definitely i agree with all of that i think that his depictions of the Christ child they do to me look kind of like shrunken grotesque yeah, men yeah no but not as much I yeah, yeah he, exactly he not was as on much. the path <laughs> right. no it's weird like it's weird how you don't really have I mean, Rubens did really beautiful, like, angels and cherubs, you know, like, there was definitely artists who did that. But it was weird. They couldn't capture that innocence of ch- of children yet. Yeah, and Then you look tough. at, like, Leyendecker and Cornwell and, and Rockwell. Oh, my God, did they master babies' faces. Holy cow. You go. They even, like, get the innocence to where you just feel like they've captured the essence of it to the T. But it took years for artists to figure that out. And that's so weird. It's the same thing with women. It's like they figured years to figure that out. Men, it doesn't matter. Men could be all ugly and gaunt. And it's just, yeah, the Byzantinian Jesus looks like a man. He doesn't look quite like a Martian. I don't even know what it is. It's just a weird fact <laughs> well, I that have someone an should idea. write a book on. Yeah, I hope that somebody has. But to me... That no one will read, except me. <laughs> I will. No. To me, it's an ideological thing because we, we revere women and children, specifically the Christ child. They are symbolic. We idealize them. And so with men we have more room to be more naturalistic about how they look because I don't think they symbolize something that is put on quite so high of a pedestal. So that's good on that side of the conversation. But how about the other side? Like, why couldn't Giotto, who is really good naturalistically and especially comparatively incredible, why couldn't he figure out how to draw a goddamn baby to look like a baby? I know, but Like, I were there it's... no babies around? <laughs> like, if he's drawing from nature, look at that baby. You're drawing a midget. Like, you're not drawing a baby. You're totally, drawing... but it's Christ. It's Christ. And I so Christ is not just a but baby. Get, your, get it right, dude. <laughs> like, that's a what? He's starting to figure women out, you know? And He is. Yeah, but he's not. He can't figure out a goddamn baby. Not And, and he's figuring out more than the Byzantinian artists are. It's just a weird thing like or is it sacrilegious to figure it out yeah that to me is kind of that would be my inroad into understanding why baby christ always looks like some kind of alien hybrid shrunken man yeah but i really think it's because of what christ symbolizes that it is just so epic in significance that it would feel diminishing to the reputation and the legacy and the spirituality and the religiosity of Christ to model him based on an actual baby. That's weird, right? Yeah, no, it's true. It's like Christ couldn't be a normal baby. It has to be a man baby. Really was what it was. It was like a man baby. That alone is just freaks me out. It's because it's freaky. It looks weird because babies don't look like that. They don't, but I love this element of the conversation because we really see this tension of naturalism with symbolism and how both of them are equally at play in these early Renaissance paintings. When you see a Raphael 
or even a Da Vinci, the babies look like babies. Yeah, they look like babies. They for do. Sure. And so eventually They're we get to that artists. place. But this is, it occupies within that liminal space of not being one thing fully and not quite being another thing fully. And so I think that awkwardness is really, really important and exciting to investigate. So his early work was this Madonna enthroned. And then what he's best known for is this arena chapel, the Scrovegni Chapel, which is in Padua. And it is incredible. I am not a religious person, but when I was inside of that space, I was sincerely moved. It is intimate. It's this little jewel, and there are three levels. The entire thing is painted blue. People assume that Giotto was actually the architect of the space because the the chapel fits so perfectly with his design. Mm. And the top register illustrate scenes of Christ's grandparents. The middle register is more of his early life. And then the bottom is the passion and it's narrative. He distills these really complicated stories into individuated moments. It's almost like a comic book. It's narrative. We can read it. There's Mm. so much emotional impact on the faces of his characters. There's one little segment where Judas, the Judas kiss, and you see the pain and the agony and the resolve on Judas's face. And we never see emotion in art before this time, art before Giotto. Mm. And it's poignant, it's tragic. And you see that resignation too on Christ's face. It's really, it's beautiful. And an anecdote that I have about the Scrovegni is that the guy who commissioned it, he was trying to do this to save his soul because he was a banker and at the time... Anyone who profited financially in the way that bankers did were thought to eventually go to hell because of usury. And so this guy thought, well, if I create this beautiful thing, I'm going to save my soul. And so there is one panel where Scrivegni is presenting a miniature copy of his chapel to the angels. And so that is this exchange that Mm -hmm. will predetermine his move to heaven after he died. So I think it's kind of funny. It was built out of self-interest, but it's one of the most spectacular places to witness. And he really wanted it to be lavish. So he told Giotto, you have to use a lot of lapis. And he didn't want the lapis to be mixed with plaster because it would be diluted. So he said, you have to do the background in a secco fresco, which is dry fresco. And Giotto was like, okay, but it's not going to hold. And it hasn't. The background is so much more fragile than the rest of the figures. And so we have a crumbling of the lapis. And just to kind of bring this forward, Da Vinci was always trying to experiment with techniques. And he tried his dry fresco too. And that was the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is seconds from death. This this work is not going to be around in the, our grandkids' generation. Right. Well, that's the whole problem with Giotto's work in general because he did so much fresco is that we don't really see the real color that he applied. We don't really get to see and experience how good of a painter he was or how good of a colorist he was because that's all really just deteriorated over time. So artists back, you know, when they were painting in 1300, I mean, it's just not going to, it's not going to stand the test of time. And, that's really unfortunate because we'll never really see the level like this guy could have been one of the greatest colorists of all time and probably was, but we don't really know. Uh, it's just time destroys everything. Oils crack. You look at some Rembrandts. It's it's sad. You look at, like you said, Da Vinci's Last Supper. That is 
the reality of, you know, of fresco, specifically fresco. Specifically dry fresco. Dry fresco, too, yes, for sure. Uh, you know, I paint in acrylics, and I, I hope that it lasts forever, but it's plastic, so we don't know. I mean, it's been around since the 50s, I think, Liquitex acrylics, really. Hasn't been around that long. I have no idea. I mean, I paint in oil sometimes, too, but we really just don't know the longevity of these materials. It's true, and it's funny because we talk about da Vinci's work and the incredible affluence of sfumato, the smoky effect, but part of that sfumato is also dirt and grime yeah. and depigmentation. So it's true. it's true, but it's only true to a certain extent. And how do you... No, I'm stretching. I'm not raising my hand. You like, <laughs> Lizzie like called on me. She's like, Sorry, and it's go. just my instinct. I'm like, She's, boo Yes, thank you so much. I'm allowed to talk now. <laughs> but like, no, you look at Michelangelo, like when I saw the Sistine Chapel untouched, and then I saw the Sistine Chapel retouched, and it's kind of bothersome, you know, <laughs> that you get all these colors because you're like... Did Michelangelo really use that? Or, I mean, I, I get that you have all these experts. At the end of the day, they don't really know what Michelangelo did. So when you have the restoration of a classical masterpiece like that, it's difficult to really go on that journey and to buy into it all because I'm sure that they tried to use the pigments and the colors and everything, and you brought in all these masters. But at the end of the day... You're just someone else touching his shit. It's true. And then also at the end of the day, I think people's reactions against the restoration of the Sistine Chapel was because it looked different from how they had seen it. And we get That's so true. used to the way that things look that then when it changes, even if the way that it was restored is exactly the way that Michelangelo painted it, it seems funny to us. It seems garish. And yeah. the so the way that we think about ancient sculptures from Greece and Rome is that they're these pristine white alabaster marble. But actually, all of the marbles were painted with these very bright, garish colors. Mm. And so the way that we think about Greek sculpture is completely wrong. What do you mean they were painted? I didn't even know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every single Greek marble was at one point polychromed. With metallic? I don't know the actual paints. I just know that they had colors. The hair, different colors, everything. And so, oh, that's weird. See, it's only weird because you expect to see it one way, and well, so then. Well, it was then, sculpted that way, and then it was painted after. Exactly, so it, was it was painted yeah, to look like animated. It's pure, that's like a baby's born, and then the baby's clothed. Yes, or it's like pentimenti versus the full painting. So it's the drawing, the scaffolding, the sketch versus the completed project. Yeah, that's. Yeah, it's only weird because we are so used to seeing things one way. Yes. So I think that's interesting with restoration. But there's a new wave of restoration that was not always true, where anything that is done to a particular work of art has to be able to be undone without damaging. Yeah, it's hard. It's a weird... We live in a weird space, which is a great space, too, obviously, because, you know, the, these... Every piece of art has an expiration date, unfortunately. And anything could happen. Earthquake, world war, invasion, fire. I mean, there's been some great paintings that are just lost in fire. Stolen, you know, torn, destroyed. So wait, it's, you know, that's great. It's part of what life's all about. And paintings are like that as well. Exactly. They're alive, they're organic, and it just Excellent. becomes Absolutely. part of their story. Yeah, and you know, some of the oil... 
molecules in even Rembrandts haven't even settled yet. That's how long certain things <laughs> yeah, take. Yeah, oil takes a long time to yeah, dry. Yeah, so, you know, there you go. There's a, there is a lesson in that, too, in terms of our own mortality. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, this was a lecture on the mononymous Giotto. Thanks for listening. Manamana. 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 <laughs>